April 25th, 2012 at 7.30 p.m. on a Wednesday night, we have a three-day-old baby girl brought to our home and she completely ruins everything in the best and the worst of ways. Because everything that we had set in motion was crushed that night by her story. Because it's impossible to sit in your comfortable story and hold such a broken story in your arms and not have your story broken by theirs. She's never left our home and has since become our daughter and we've had other girls come and go, including the ones that we have now. There hasn't been a day that's gone by that we haven't considered where would she be right now had we not been given the privilege to step into her story. But even more than that, there hasn't been a day that's gone by where we haven't considered for ourselves where would we be right now had she not stepped into our story and changed everything about who we are. Today on Unite, Jason Johnson of the Christian Alliance for Orphans helps us prepare our hearts and minds for Orphan Sunday coming next weekend. Welcome to Unite from the Nehemiah Network. I'm Mike Clowers, and I'm with Ray Williams. And Ray, the three initiatives of the Nehemiah Network are United Prayer, Leadership, and mobilization. And over a decade ago, I know it's hard to believe it's been that long, you were involved in initial meetings around orphan issues in central Arkansas that led to the formation of the call. Tell us about those early meetings. Well, there was a, a young mother in our community who now is the Plasky County director for the call, Mary Carol Peterson who came to some pastoral leadership in the community just expressing her heart for the orphan and really crying out for the church to come alongside and, and do what we're called to do as the church. And I, I think all of us are, as pastors, are familiar with uh, James one twenty seven religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself sustained from the world. And so if, if anyone should care about children in our community who don't have a caring home, it ought to be the church. And so as Mary Carroll began to work with others who shared that heart and that passion, the call was uh, birthed, and then the Nehemiah Network or the relational network of churches in the community said, let's get behind this because... Uh, the church should care about the orphan. And it really was around uh, the dream that that our city, our community, and, and ultimately our state could be a place where there was no, no child waiting for a caring home. And now in Pulaski County, Ray, over half of the foster parents have come through the calls training program, so it has been effective, hasn't it? It's been very effective. They're doing a great job. They do a great job of equipping and encouraging churches. And so today is we're focused on this topic. And as we, as we approach uh, National Orphan Month, I think we would encourage and appeal every leader, every church leader in the community to ask, how can my church be a part of loving the children in our community? National Orphan Sunday is coming up on November the 13th, and it's where the church is called to defend the cause of the fatherless 
as it says in Isaiah chapter 1. And one of the things the call has done every year to say thank you to pastors is invite them to a breakfast. And for 2016, the guest speaker was Jason Johnson. Jason is a leader with the Christian Alliance for Orphans. And we're going to listen to Jason's talk today. Powerful message given just a few weeks ago at St. Mark Baptist Church as the call invited the pastors to come and hear and take up the cause of the fatherless. It's an honor to be here with you all this morning. Um, What I want you to know about the call from a national perspective is that the call is one of the most well-respected and pointed to organizations in our country in terms of establishing and and catalyzing foster care movements in states. And so the work that I do in partnership with Christian Alliance for Orphans, uh, the call is a very well-known and recognized model even that organizations are looking to and pointing to and helping other states Uh, really figure out how can we do what's happening in Arkansas through the call. And so it's just a great honor for me to be here with you all today. My job this morning is really to tell you things that you already know. So we're going to get a little preachy, maybe, but we're in a re- this is good company, right? Uh, and it's really for us to sit back and to be refreshed and to be reminded of why, why are we doing what we're doing, not only individually, but also corporately in our churches. Why are we doing what we're doing? And that's an important question for us, and I think it's a profound one. And I think that even when we get to the end of our rope and we're asking that question in desperation, why are we doing what we're doing? which is a question that's often asked in our own home as well. Uh, We look around at other families that are quote unquote normal, where they can just pick up and go. They can go to the movie, they can go on a date night, they can do normal things uh, that are exponentially more complicated for families like ours. And we lay in bed at night and ask, why are we doing this? That's a great place to be because that's an opportunity for us all to be reminded in deep and profound ways of the heart of God, the work of Jesus on our behalf, and to be reminded that this is ultimately our why. It's not why do we continue to do this, but it's really more of a question of how can we not continue to do this in light of the things that we know to be true. Not just in light of the need that we know is around us, but first and foremost, in light of what we know to be true in terms of the work of Jesus on our behalf. How can we not continue to do the things that we do? I recently came across a story uh, that I'll share with you. In St. Lucia, the island of St. Lucia, there's a parrot that is native to the island of St. Lucia, meaning this parrot exists nowhere else. It is St. Lucia's parrot. It's gorgeous, vivid, turquoise, blue face, lime green wings, striking red chest. If you were to think of what a Caribbean parrot might look like on a postcard, this is the iconic picture of it. In 1977, there were only 100 left. It was on the brink of extinction. They were victims of of habitat destruction, hunting, people using them as pets illegally. And a London college student caught wind of this, someone who was very committed towards restoring and protecting uh, species that were endangered. And he spent five weeks in St. Lucia studying the parrot, and he developed three recommendations for the government of St. Lucia. Number one, that there would be more severe punishment for those who harmed the bird. Number two, that they would create a bird sanctuary where these birds could live in freedom, but also captivity and protection. And then number three, that they would raise money through rainforest tours. They would put on these tours, raise money, and it would go to help protect and preserve 
the St. Lucia parrots. And all three of these were adopted into the program of the St. Lucia government, but they required something. They all three required legislation, laws being changed, and therefore they were going to need public support from the people in order to change and affect those laws. And so this college student had to figure out a way to make people care about a bird that most of them didn't even know existed, and most of them took for granted, and most of them, if the bird went away, they wouldn't even miss it. And so the dilemma for the college student is how do I incite public support for a bird that most people aren't even aware of and wouldn't miss if it went away. And so he knew that his appeal to the public, to the people of St. Lucia, could not be analytical. It couldn't be numbers driven. It had to be emotional. He had to emotionally tie the people of St. Lucia to this bird. And so his goal was to convince the St. Lucians that they were the kind of people that protected their own. This is our bird. Nobody else has this bird. We need to take care of it because it's ours. It's nobody else's. So they printed t-shirts, they were on the radio, they put bumper stickers on people's cars, they had billboards up around town. They even, they went so far as to go to local ministers and convince them to, to really press into certain passages about being good stewards of the land and taking care of what God's given you, and then using the St. Lucia parrot as an illustration of that. The wave of public support made it possible to pass all the pieces of legislation. And now to this day, the St. Lucia parrot has become a national treasure. And it's really an icon for the people of St. Lucia. This is our bird. Nobody else has this bird. We are the kind of people that take care of our own. The appeal for the London College student was he wanted to attach a certain sense of identity between the people of St. Lucia and something that was their own. And through that identity was born a sense of responsibility. We are the only ones that have this bird, and it's right here in our own backyard. We have to do something about it. The appeal for us in terms of foster care and adoption and the needs right here in our city is not so much driven by analytical data, although that's important for us to know. The need is overwhelming, but more than that, it's an issue of identity for us, not only as leaders in our community, but even the people in our churches that we've been called to serve and to steward. It's really pressing into them a sense of identity that is ultimately rooted in the work of Jesus on their behalf. That first and foremost, foster care for us is not a government issue, it is a gospel issue. It is first and foremost a gospel issue. Government has its essential place in it, but for those of us that are leading the people of God, charged with the task of stewarding the people of God, it is first and foremost an identity issue. We are the kind of people that when these kinds of needs are placed before us, our identity compels us to do something about it. These are our kids and our families right here in our city, and we have to do something about it. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, this is one of my favorite passages that really lays out for us what a holistic, comprehensive gospel identity really looks like. And we begin to see that, that when Jesus enters into our story, it produces this comprehensive change. Everything about who we are changes. And that produces a sense of identity and it produces a sense of responsibility. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says it this way, he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born under the law. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And I would even suggest to you that Christmas is a fantastic opportunity 
to preach the narrative of the gospel through the lens of the foster care and adoption issue in our city. Because it's the story of God ultimately seeing the plight of his people and no longer remaining on the peripherals, but actually seeing the brokenness and stepping into it. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, incarnated himself, wrapped himself in flesh, saw our brokenness, stepped into our brokenness, took our brokenness upon himself, ultimately allowed it to break him so that we didn't have to be broken anymore. Christmas is the story of God saying, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you. We all know the opposite message of that. Religion says uh, that God sees us where we are in our brokenness, in our plight, and says, if you could just clean yourself up enough, get your act together enough before you can actually come to the one that can clean you up. But what we see in Galatians chapter four and what we celebrate at Christmas and what we see all throughout the narrative of scripture is that God doesn't say, I see you where you are, and if you can just get your act together enough, then you can be where I am. God says, I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you. What a fantastic opportunity we have as leaders, especially wrapped up in the sentiment of the Christmas season, to really proclaim that story of God is the kind of God that sees brokenness, and he runs into it. The world, on the contrary, sees brokenness and hard things and ugly things, and does what it can to shelter itself from it and to recoil from it and to pull back from it. But the gospel sees broken things and presses into it and runs towards it. And Paul begins to lay that out. He says, here's the first thing that happens in verse five, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now there's that imagery of adoption. Here's this this picture that is running all through the current of scripture of, of family. It's as if God says, here's, here's kind of how your salvation works. It's like you were once not a part of the family of God, but now because of the work of Jesus, you are part of the family of God. Now we can actually refer to God and relate to God as Father. When the disciples come to Jesus and say, teach us how to pray, and he says, okay, here's the first thing. When you refer to God, you now have the ability, the capacity to refer to him as Father. Our Father who art in heaven. And I'm convinced every time we see the word father in scripture, every time we see a reference to us being children of God, that should cause us some pause in scripture, literally just to sit back and to just sit on that for a minute. Because the weight and the gravity behind those words could not be overstated. The links that God had to go through, through Jesus on our behalf in order to accomplish that relationship of father and son and daughter could not be overstated. It's significant. It's heavy that we now have this new present reality with God, this new identity with him. We are children of God. And this has been accomplished because God saw our brokenness and he interjected himself into it. So now we see this idea that God's the kind of God that sees us where we are and he comes after us. He's also the kind of God that meets us exactly where we are. We were condemned under the weight of the law that we could not live up to. And Jesus was born under that law. He met us exactly where we were and he redeemed us out from underneath it. So Paul is speaking to this comprehensive shift that occurs when God enters our story through Jesus. And the first thing that's accomplished is that our past has been decisively dealt with. The instability, the insecurity, the odds, and the enmity have been removed. And now in verse 6, Paul says, here's what's been accomplished. Because you are sons, this present language now, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Paul uses this present language and says your past has been decisively dealt with. And now your present reality has been significantly shifted. 
Scripture says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And I'm convinced that that confidence, the root of that confidence for us and for our people is knowing that not only is God our Father, but He's also our Abba. I can come to Him with anything, and I know exactly how He's going to respond to me, like a good Abba would. That He's going to to love me, He's going to show me grace. Scripture even says He's going to discipline me because that's what a good father does. That's what a good daddy does. Our past has been dealt with, and our present reality has been shifted now. Our relationship with God now is defined by intimacy and affection and confidence anticipation. We know exactly how God's going to respond to us. He's not angry with us. He's not disappointed in us. All that has been poured out on the back of Jesus. And now we can come to him with confidence. This brand new present identity, this brand new present reality. And it doesn't end there. Verse 7, Paul says our past has been dealt with, our present has been dealt with, and then in verse 7, our future has been dealt with. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. This future language of heir. An heir is someone we all know that lives today with the confidence of what's to come tomorrow. There's an assurance of what's to come tomorrow. There's a security today because we know what's going to happen tomorrow. It doesn't mean we, don't, we know what the news reports are going to be tomorrow. It doesn't mean that we know what the economy is going to do tomorrow. It doesn't mean that we know what a presidential candidate's going to say or not say tomorrow. We don't know those things, but we do know other things with certainty. We know that in the end, Jesus is going to win over all of this. That's the assurance that we have today. We are heirs, Scripture says, over and over and over again of this glory that awaits us. And we have the opportunity to press deeply into our people this sense of identity and security that is rooted in the gospel, which says it's not that we don't have to be responsible today, but it certainly is that we don't have to be afraid today. Because we know in the end how this whole thing ends and who's going to save us from it all. This is the comprehensive and holistic effect of the gospel in our lives. This completely new identity. My past has been dealt with. My present reality has been shifted. And the future trajectory of my life has been altered for all of eternity. Everything has changed when Jesus entered my story. So when we talk about foster care and we talk about adoption, when we talk about, no pun intended, adopting this identity for ourselves, not only for us as leaders, but for our churches corporately, and then for each individual member of our churches, pressing this identity, this sense of identity in the gospel into them, because the parallels between the work of Jesus on our behalf and our work on behalf of kids and families in our city are beautiful and unending. What you and I are being given the privilege to do And in many ways, the mandate to call our people to do is in a very physical sense, nothing more or less than what Jesus has done for us in a very spiritual sense. Let me end with this story. When I was nine years old, I learned that the man I had grown up calling dad was in fact not my biological father. And uh, it came through a meeting with my mom, my, my dad, my older sister and I. And at nine years old, I learned of the first two years of my life, um, which I was wholly unaware of. And you name the vice, um, you name the disease, you name the struggle, uh, and my biological father excelled at it. He was a professional. That ultimately led my mom and my sister and I into a position of being alone with a very broken story for my mom and very, two very cute pieces of baggage to go along with it, a six-year-old girl and an especially cute piece of baggage in me, the two-year-old little boy. With her broken story and her two little kids, she walks into a church in North Dallas one day and she sees a young guy up on stage. He was leading worship at the time. 
They eventually develop a friendship, develop a relationship, and over time fall in love. And at the age of 23 years old, my dad gets down on his knee and asks to take the hand of my 32-year-old mom in marriage. Nine years difference, 23-year-old guy, down on his knee in front of my 32-year-old mom, basically saying, I know your story, I understand your story, I love you because of your story, let's begin to write a new story together. He then turns to my sister and asks to take her hand to become his daughter, and then he turns to me and asks to take my hand to become his son. He would eventually marry my mom, and after all the paperwork was filed, would adopt me as his son and adopt my sister as his daughter, and he would change my first, middle, and last name. Completely new identity. The old is gone, the new has come. I have two birth certificates. The new identity is marked by stability and security and confidence and anticipation. And there's been multiple times in my life since hearing of that story that I've paused and considered, gosh, where would I be right now had my dad not stepped into our story? What would my life look like? Who would I be interacting with? Where would I be? There's been multiple times in my life when I've been in situations, even ones like this right now, where I've thought I would never be here had some 30-something years ago my dad not stepped into my story and changed everything about it, past, present, and future. Fast forward some 30 years later, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to become foster parents in the city of Houston. Our church was going well at the time. We just moved into a, a, a home that fit our three girls, had a car that fit our three girls. We had the perfect life set up, and unknowingly, we were on the fast track towards convenience and comfort and, and coasting. April 25th, 2012, at 7.30 p.m. on a Wednesday night, we have a three-day-old baby girl brought to our home, and she completely ruins everything in the best and the worst of ways. Because everything that we had set in motion was crushed that night by her story. Because it's impossible to sit in your comfortable story and hold such a broken story in your arms and not have your story broken by theirs. She's never left our home and has since become our daughter, and we've had other girls come and go, including the ones that we have now. But there hasn't been a day that's gone by since Marley has been in our home where we haven't paused and considered, where would she be right now? What would she be doing right now? Had we not been given the privilege to become a part of her story? We eventually adopted her as our own daughter and changed her first, middle, and last name as well. Completely new identity. The old is gone. The new has come. She and I, between the two of us, have four birth certificates. And when she's old enough, we'll sit down, uh, probably over some tea party dates, and we will have a birth certificate conversation. And we will talk about how Daddy and, and Marley have, have the same story like that. There hasn't been a day that's gone by that we haven't considered where would she be right now had we not been given the privilege to step into her story. But even more than that, there hasn't been a day that's gone by where we haven't considered for ourselves where would we be right now had she not stepped into our story and changed everything about who we are. I shudder at the thought of where we would be had Marley and these other kids that have come and gone not stepped into our story and changed us. I shudder at the thoughts of, of where our own kids would be, even where our marriage would be, the deep and profound impact that this has had on our biological daughters, on our marriage, the sense of mission that it's given my wife and I together, all that would have been lost had we not been given the privilege to do for her 
what Christ has done for us, and in turn, her do for us things that we never expected would happen. And I think in all of that, we can compel our people to step back at certain points and to consider where would I be right now had Jesus not, at just the right time, stepped into my story and changed everything about it. And as we compel our people to consider that, and it forms this sense of gospel identity in them, that becomes the framework and the foundation upon which they are compelled to do for these kids and these families in a very physical way what Christ has done for them in a deeply profound spiritual way. Where would we be right now had Jesus not? That's the question that ultimately compels us. Hmm. Jason Johnson of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. Jason shared that message at this year's Call Pastors Prayer Breakfast. And we share it with you today, hoping that it will be an encouragement for you to bring the orphan near on Orphan Sunday, which is next Sunday, November the 13th. You've been listening to Unite from the Nehemiah Network. And we want to invite you to attend our next third Thursday Pastors and Christian Leaders Prayer Luncheon. It will be with special guest Governor Asa Hutchinson on Thursday, November 17th, 11.30 a.m. until 1 p.m. at New Life Church's Greater Little Rock Campus in North Little Rock. And that same evening, Governor Hutchinson will join us and be a part of the next One Voice Regional Night of Worship and Prayer that will happen at New Life Church in North Little Rock. For information, head to our website. It's nehemiahnetwork.org. You've been listening to Unite from the Nehemiah Network. I'm your host, Mike Clowers. Thank you for listening.